So, Isaiah 52, starting at verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, listen, your watchmen lift up their voices and together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see they will see the salvation of our God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we continue to make our way to the familiar scene in Bethlehem, the manger, the shepherds, I am surprised no one did that. Okay, good job. As we may, I will not say sheep because I have bod enough. As we make our way to continue to kind of walk into the nativity, we're making a pit stop here in Jerusalem. We're joining the watchmen of ancient Israel as they guard what's left of the ruins of their city. For them, for the watchmen in this part of Isaiah, it has been long years since the city was whole and alive when the city hummed with life and, and the temple was a light to the nations, the temple that Solomon built, the promise of God's presence with them. But now, by this point, most of the people in the city had been carried off. They were displaced, they were enslaved in different parts of an empire that conquered them. Whole communities were uprooted and torn apart not only the people, but the city walls and the temple itself. The city walls were dismantled. You have no protection left. The temple was torn down stone by stone, saying your God has left you. And then, and then there was that eerie silence that settles in when a city is only a quarter full that eerie silence of the absence of other voices, the absence of those signs of life. And still, the watchmen kept their post, waiting, watching, on broken walls. For the enemy army to appear over the ridge and finish the job they started, most likely, they had long given up hope on seeing the return of familiar faces that had been taken out of Jerusalem, their friends, their spouses, their children, their, their colleagues. And some had stopped praying because it felt too long since God seemed to have listened to their prayers. And then one day, 
one of the watchmen raises his eyes to the hills and sees a speck moving in the distance. It's too small to make out who, but it's gotta be a messenger. Enemy or friend, who knows? <laughs> they couldn't take their eyes off that speck as it moved closer throughout the morning, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But they watched with one hand on their horn, ready to raise it to their lips and sound the alarm to the people below in the ruins to let them know that the enemy was there to finish the job. And then they could start to see the messenger. And the messenger was frantically waving his arms, trying to be heard, yelling something that couldn't yet reach their ears. One guard lifted that horn to his lips, ready to alert the people below that death was upon them. And the others held their breath. And then finally, the words of the frantic messenger reached their ears. Your God reigns! Your God reigns! A messenger proclaimed the glad tidings that the exile was over, their enemy defeated, and that God's people, his scattered people across an enemy empire, were coming home. And this messenger, frantic arm-waving, this lone messenger over the mountains, brought good news. The messenger brought words of life and not the words of death they expected. Words of peace and not more war. And words of salvation and not ruin. The people in the ruins of the city below heard the ruckus of the watchmen up top on the broken walls, and they braced themselves for that warning horn that they expected to come. The coming of the enemy. The ending of what little they had left. But as they held their breath, that warning horn did not come. And instead, as their bodies untensed and they listened to the commotion, they realized what they were hearing was laughter. And the sound of the watchmen singing at the top of their lungs, not screaming words of warning, but they were singing songs of joy. C.S. Lewis had a dear friend named J.R.R. Tolkien, who you might know very well as the writer of The Lord of the Rings. And he coined a term, Tolkien coined a term, for this kind of moment in a story. This kind of moment when everything is going wrong in the story and there is absolutely no evidence to show that the story is going to change. There will come ruin, destruction, and enemy over that mountain. That messenger is a harbinger of death. And Tolkien said, but in that moment, when what is wrong is turned into what is right, unexpectedly, unlooked for, he said that that is a you-catastrophe. And not Y-O-U, R-U, but the Greek you, E-U. It means good. 
eucatastrophe is a good catastrophe. It's typically, Tolkien said, what we call a happy ending. Except he never liked that happy ending. It doesn't end. A good story continues. But we come to a turn in the story. We come to a moment when things change. He wrote that a moment of eucatastrophe in a story is a sudden, joyous turn. Not an ending, a turn. And it's not essentially escapist, but it is sudden and miraculous grace. He writes that it does not deny the existence of sorrow and failure, but it does deny, in the face of much evidence, to be honest, universal final defeat. And in that way, eucatastrophe is good news. It is good news that gives us a fleeting glimpse of joy, and not just momentary happiness, but the joy that is beyond the walls of this world, that is poignant as grief. And Tolkien wrote that the mark of a good story is that when you come to this moment of eucatastrophe, when you come to this joyous turn in a story, that what you feel is a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting up of the heart, near to or indeed accompanied by tears, a glimpse of your heart's desire and your longing for joy. The messenger in Isaiah could have been probably should have been a messenger of further destruction and ruin. But instead, the prophet is able to declare how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, who bring sudden and unexpected words, who proclaim not that God has abandoned the people of Jerusalem, as all the evidence would indeed support but that they are not ultimately defeated, and that God has indeed come to comfort them. The coming of the messenger doesn't erase all that has happened, right? It does not magically restore the ruins of the city. It does not deny the wounds and the pain and the loss of the people who remained and the loss of those who were taken. But the proclamation of salvation denies death the last word in the story and speaks to the fact that the promises, the promises of God are for more than ruin and destruction. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and his friend Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings. They were buds, they would read each other's writing uh, at the pub uh, after work, and they would critique and share. And so they kind of developed this theory, this way of talking about story, and also the Christian story, that kind of reverberates in both of their work. And they wrote about Narnia and Middle-earth, so that they knew how easy it is to become skeptical, 
how easy it is to become jaded about what is possible in our world. They, Lewis talked about the baptized imagination. That was actually how he came to Christ, is that he read stories about what is possible, fairy stories, fantasy stories, and that helped him think what is possible in our world through Jesus Christ, a baptized imagination. And you notice how hard it is, both of them knew, how hard it is for us to be like children, to believe in the sudden and the miraculous grace of God, not just in a story then, but in our stories now. We have become too grown up for our own good. Too, too grown up for fairy stories. Too grown up to believe them. But Tolkien and Lewis's hope is that when we're moved by a good story, when we expand our capacity to experience that catch of the breath, that beat and lifting up of the heart, and, and that, that coming to tears that surprises us, that when we do that, we open ourselves up to the joy of an unexpected goodness in the story, unlooked for, and that when we do that, we actually cultivate our capacity to see that in our lives and in our stories. And that we actually might just live a little bit better into the invitation, into the command of Jesus, who said that if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, be like a child. Don't become too grown up for your own good. I first encountered Aslan in Narnia when my grade four teacher, Mrs. Baird, read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to us. Now, she read it a chapter at a time after lunch recess. I was so impatient to get to the end. But I was a public school kid. This was not a Christian story that we were told, it's just a good story. I had no idea that Lewis was a Christian. I had no idea that Aslan was a type of Christ. We kind of show our hand here when we bring it into church. But for me, I had no idea. And so as the story unfolded, as I sat with the Pevensies and the Beavers at the table hearing about Aslan for the first time, as I stood on the hilltop across from the stone table and saw Aslan's creaturely court arrayed around him in a half moon, as I stood with Lucy and Susan at dawn and heard the great crack of the stone table behind me, I felt that thrill of hope and recognition. I know this story. I know who Aslan is supposed to be. I know, I know this story. Rowan Williams, who wrote a book on Lewis and Narnia and how Lewis intended to use the Chronicles of Narnia, he said that by entering into Narnia, we enter an unfamiliar world in which we can rediscover what it means to meet the holy without the staleness of religious preconceptions. We can know something of the joy of the story 
without the staleness of religious preconceptions. Because I think sometimes we can be so overly familiar with these precious stories of our faith that it takes a fairy story filled with centaurs and dryads and wardrobes and witches and the shake of a golden mane and the roar of a lion to help us experience anew just how wild and beautiful the ways of God truly are. Because in our everyday life, in our everyday grown-up lives, we can be like those who walk the ruins of a city, accepting that this is the way things are now. Just get on with life and don't expect too much. Keep your head down, go about your day, because to imagine more, to hope for more, to believe more, it's simply not possible. But on days like this one, on Christmas morning, as we remember and believe the story of angels appearing in the sky to shepherds and their sheep, as we remember and believe the story of a king born not in a palace, but in a stable, as we remember and believe the story of the Son of God wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a feeding trough, we are like those who have been watching on the ruined walls, lifting our eyes to the hills, holding our breath, and finally hearing the messenger's cry of good news. The sudden, the miraculous turn of joy that is not just for one ruined city, but is for one whole ruined world. Your God reigns. Your God reigns. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And whether or not you find this easy to believe this morning, if you find yourself a bit more skeptical and jaded this year, a little too grown up for all of this nonsense, or maybe you're simply so surrounded by ruins and destruction that words of, of hope and joy simply seem too far off to do you any good. The eucatastrophe of the gospel is that God shows up when and where God is least expected where all the evidence argues against his presence, but where God is most needed. He shows up with sudden and miraculous grace. In the ruins of an ancient city, in a little town of Bethlehem, and in our stories, here and now. How beautiful, 
How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. Burst into songs of laughter, songs of joy, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Emmanuel, we come before you in various states of ruin, some of us with strong walls and some of us torn down stone by stone. We come to a stable and a manger, hearing a voice of angels declaring your gift of grace to us, sudden and unexpected and undeserved in the birth of your son. Thank you for this gift. Thank you for the beautiful eucatastrophe of his birth. And thank you for who he is for us and with us. Our Emmanuel, our God with us. In the name of Jesus, our Emmanuel, we pray. Amen.